Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A word of warning, this podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I am joined by Sarah all the way from the UK. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on. You're the first guest that we've had on this year Um, and it's really great to have so many people coming on from overseas and especially to have someone else on coming from the UK. Um, So do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name's um, Sarah. I live in London um, in, in the UK, as Madeline said. Um, I'm 52 years old now. Um, I've got, uh, I'm divorced with uh, two children, um, both teenagers, a uh, girl and a boy. And um, yeah, I work um, for the Home Office um, in the UK, resettling refugees, uh, which is a very rewarding job. Um, some of the things I like doing, I'm I really love running. So um, I'm a marathon runner. So last year I ran 12 marathons. And um, this year I'm hoping to um, do some more marathons and some more ultra running as well. So I've got a 50 mile uh, run lined up um, doing the Pennine Ultra um, in the north of the UK um, in May and a 100k um, run as well later in the year too. So uh, that's a little bit about me. That is amazing. And I can't believe that you can run that far. I'm very much a, I grew up as a pole vaulter and a gymnast. So I think okay. I'm all short twitch fibers. I really want to reach a half marathon one day, but just 10K would be my goal. I can't seem to crack five. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I started that, you know, back thinking, oh, I couldn't do five. And then it was 10 and then it was a half and then it's a marathon. And now it's just, you know, how, how far can I keep keep running? That's so amazing. It's such a good goal to have in front of you as well. You've always got something to look forward to and a new challenge. We do have you on to, to tell your story as well. So um, I'm a survivor of um, non-recent uh, childhood sexual abuse. It was at the hands of my father. Um, so we moved to London from um, Leicester, which is sort of up more north in the UK, um, when I was six. And, um, and that's when the abuse started. Um, I, I was I was an unhappy child. I think, especially when we moved um, to to London, I was being bullied at school, and and um, my mother had never been, um, you know, very very hands on, shall we say? Um, yeah, my mother wasn't really sort of available 
Um, and I think my, my dad then sort of saw an opportunity, as how I see it, to um, start grooming me um, for, for his own kind of uh, needs. So um, it started it started when I was six with um, him sharing baths with me and, um, you know, inappropriate touching. And, and then it sort of quickly escalated to him coming into my um, room um, when I was six and, and asking if I wanted to play with him. Um, I mean, I, I initially thought that was he wanted to, you know, play with my toys or whatever, but obviously that wasn't what he had in mind. And um, and then it's so, I mean, he told me then that it was a, a secret and that I mustn't tell, you know, mummy because she'd be jealous. Um, and that's when and that's when sort of the abuse sort of escalated and it escalated quite quickly from um, from sort of me touching him to, to oral sex um, with him, which was kind of like a everyday kind of occurrences um carried on it was in the home and when my mother was in the house I mean I've got two brothers my brothers were in the house and um he also used to take me uh, obviously when it was too difficult to abuse me in the home he used to take me on to we had a I lived opposite common um like a park space and he'd take me there and sort of abuse me there and obviously drive me to other kind of you know more remote locations to abuse me and then when I was um 11 I knew that something it was something different about that day because he'd asked me to come home from school early to to go to the dentist and and that was the kind of thing that my father would never take us to the dentist it would always be my mother would do that kind of thing um so we were alone in the house and and that was the the, the day that that he raped me um and then and then it carried you know everything else was still carrying on um throughout that and it just got even more kind of um difficult for me as I was uh, going into teenage years because the abuse was continuing and then he um he became really fascinated with with the way that my body was changing and going through puberty and and he redecorated our bathroom so it was just like full of mirrors and he'd just get me standing there sort of naked while he kind of examined me which was hugely kind of humiliating um and then he he would also sort of show me pornography and and you know get me to sort of sit in those kind of um, poses I mean this was sort of back in the 1970s and 80s so sort of before luckily before the days of sort of uh, you know um, child porn um, and things but it was just yeah it was just it was just a really really difficult kind of um, experience to go through I mean when I when I, I was getting really I mean I sort of became suicidal about the age of 12 and I remember going to the library obviously days before Google and researching how to um, kill myself um, but I never sort of felt that I had the courage um, to do that so I thought I was just a coward because I couldn't carry carry that through um, and then you know everything was just getting on top of me so by the time I was like 14 or 15 I started trying to stop the abuse um, and so I kept, I mean, that took quite a long time. I just kept saying no, and he'd do all this kind of pleading, you know, didn't I like it, didn't I love him, all this other kind of uh, stuff, um, and until eventually I was 15, and then I just sort of said no, that was it, and then then it ended. Um, but it didn't really, it didn't, obviously it didn't really end psychologically. I mean, I, still, I was still living at home, and um, and he just blanked me for six, he didn't speak to me for six months after that as a kind of like, that was the punishment I got for, um, you know, uh, telling him I didn't want to carry on with it anymore um, and and so yeah I sort of was in a really bad way really when I was in my teenage years um, and into the 16 or 17 when I was still at home and 
um, my father, he'd travel quite a lot to work and he'd been to Australia, actually. And we had on the on the coffee table, like a really big book about Australia. And I think I got it into my head that that was the furthest place I could go <laughs> um, to, to get away and to kind of break the ties. So I'd like, you know, I, so when I was 18, I, I, I went on a um, I went to Australia um, for a year to to travel around the most naive person going there like in the late 1980s going there but you know I mean it had always been a place I wanted to go so that I kind of ran away to Australia um you know to break the ties so that's really kind of you know my story. Wow I'm so sorry that that you had to go through that and that you had to go through that for a decade as well pretty much like um what was it like in the house like did obviously you were told this wasn't this was a secret you need to keep this a secret was there anybody that you ever disclosed to or was there any inkling of behavior along the way that maybe your brothers or your mum knew that something was a bit amiss? Yeah, I mean, my, um, I think my, my, well, when I look back, I mean, I first, I didn't, I disclosed to, I tried to disclose to a school friend when I was um, 13. Um, but as soon as I said the words, I kind of retracted them. And I always thought in my head that I'd kind of not 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 said the words but um a bit well many years later um I mean I went to the um so that was the only person I disclosed to as a child I was writing in my diary this is things that I found out later only recently actually in October last year but I, um, my younger brother had read my diary um it turns out and in that I'd read that I just wanted the um the abuse to stop so but he didn't really I don't I mean he was younger than me he didn't really fully appreciate I don't think what what that meant um, then, I mean, as far as my mother was concerned, I mean, so I so I disclosed sort of to a school friend when I was thirteen, and then then when I was um, I came back from Australia and I went to university and, um, and and told a couple of friends then, but then I just tried to sort of carry on with my life um, through my twenties, um, but was yeah I was getting into like you know um, inappropriate relationships, shall we say, abusive relationships with with men, um, and and just but. And then my older brother had a daughter when I was um, just before I turned 30. And I was think it was one thing for me to have suffered the abuse. But then I was really afraid that, you know, my father would have access to my niece and abuse her. So I just made the decision to that that was the time that I had to disclose. Um, I had a breakdown at that point and was hospitalized. Um, and it just, it just all got too, too much um, for me. So I like became suicidal and I was self-harming and 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 everything but um so I had a bit of a breakdown but then when I was 30 I told my told my mother um what had happened and but and she um I mean, she she accepted I mean I wasn't disbelieved because I think on some level she knew um what happened um and she was sort of I mean I remember times when I was very small so I was six maybe my younger brother was four and, and we were being bathed together and my mom would ask you know do you know what happens when you know, a, a mother and a father make a baby, which is kind of a bit weird. And I, and I would say things that were, you know, more graphic than a six-year-old should know. So I think that she was kind of trying to ask those questions to to see what I knew. And I was kind of just telling her, that, and to anybody, it would have been completely obvious, um, I think, um, for that. So, yeah, so that's when I, I first disclosed to my mother and, um and I and I confronted my father at that point, and we'd been having a relationship up to up to this point. I mean, the thing that was been the hardest thing for me, I think, was the fact that I I loved my father so much, I adored him, um, even through all this um, abuse. So so I disassociated through most of the 
um, abuse. So I had on the one hand, my lovely father, who was just fantastic, and then the abusive father. And he was also very uh, violent to my older brother and, and just in the home. So there was that kind of um, kind of thing going on as well. So it was, re- it was a really confusing kind of place to, to, grow, to grow up in. Um, yeah, so I just so when after I disclosed and I confronted my father, I just wanted him at that point because I still loved him. I wanted him to just admit what he'd done and show remorse and say he was really sorry. And then, then I kind of I that's what I wanted from him. And then I thought, you know, if he could get help, go to see a therapist, you know, get help with his um, with his behaviour, that then maybe we could carry on and have a relationship. But he could never he he could never accept responsibility or or um you know say sorry or anything I mean the most he managed was to say that um you know that he may have acted inappropriately but you know I just it just didn't do it for me um so I, I carried on trying to see him so I confronted him on about three occasions to try and um you know move forward but we didn't get anywhere so when I was 32 I cut off contact with him when I did try to carry on a relationship with my mother she stayed with my father and has stayed with my father to this day which is um, yeah, something that I mean, I, I find incomprehensible as a mother now. But um, you know, and everybody I've ever spoken to just can't understand why she'd stay with him. But but she did, so she stayed with him. I mean, I tried to carry on with my life. I mean, I got married, I had kids, um, but then my first child was a daughter, and and it just became really hard as she was growing into the ages that that I was when I was um, being abused. That it just became harder and harder to. Um, to keep things together, really. Um, so I, you know, I, I thought my children should have a relationship with their grandmother, if not their grandfather, but that just became too hard to do as well. So I cut off contact with my mother in 2015. And, um, and then was, yeah, I was just going in and out of you know, sort of mental health crises, um, really. I mean, my marriage started to fall apart and everything just became really difficult. Um, and I was in therapy at this point, and, and then I decided in 2019 that when my, when my daughter was 15, that I just wanted to show to her that you know that that you can't that you have to kind of stand up for yourself, and that justice you know can be done. Um, so I went to the police and reported um, the abuse uh, to the police in 2019, and we we're really lucky in the UK that we don't have a statute of limitations on child abuse cases. So. Um, so that was lucky. So that was the age of 50 was when I finally um, went to the police. Um, and I had a really good uh, police officer. I know that sort of rape convictions in the UK are really an all time low. But um, I, I mean, I was I've only been treated fantastically by the police and um, and the case. It was a lot of investigation. And through that, we, we um, uncovered the friend that I told when I was 13 at school and she had sort of corroborated what I said and, and she said that she'd carried that guilt with her all her life because she felt that she should have done something when I when I told her even though obviously then I said to her that you know I would have died rather than she'd tell anybody um, and then then it was at, only at the sentencing of my father in October last year that um, that that the, my barrister um my lawyer disclosed, well, well, obviously my brother knew, but the first time I found out that my brother had, had um, read my diary when I was when I was 13 and he'd carried a huge amount of, of guilt all these years for for not really 
knowing what I was saying or, or anything, but obviously, I mean, it wasn't his his guilt to hold. So, so with that, with those two corroborating things, I think that the case was you know, really strong against my father, and he was convicted of of um, all eight charges um, of you know running from sexual assault to to rape, um, and he was sentenced to thirteen years in prison in October. Um, last year, so uh, so so now he's in prison, which is a bit a bit surreal, um, a bit surreal. I mean, everything's a bit surreal. And, and my mother, um, you know, stood by him and my father's family, my extended family, my aunts and uncles, they all stood by him as well. So, um, which has been difficult. Um, but I mean, I'm lucky. I've got my my brothers have both um, supported me. Um, so, so I'm lucky to have those them really. Yeah. Did you say thirteen one three or yeah. three zero? One thirteen. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. seventy. He's seventy nine now. I mean, my barrister said that if he'd been younger, he would have got twenty years. Um, but I mean, I mean, thirteen years was more than well, <laughs> more more than I ever. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I never, I didn't report to the police. I mean, a because you know that's a hugely traumatizing thing to do, and I wasn't really in a in a strong place mentally um, with that. But I never thought that. I always thought it'd be my word against his because obviously there was no witnesses, um, as is obviously the nature of, you know, child abuse. Um, you know, so I never thought that, you know, it would it would get where it did. I mean, I was I mean, I was lucky in some respects. Well, I mean, the police have built a really strong case. I mean, um, and so I didn't have to go through the trial process. And I'm so pleased about that because my father pleaded guilty to all charges. Um, so so we just had to do um, the sentencing. But even that was... Um, that was, I mean, a hugely traumatising day. I mean, in, in the UK, we can um, give a victim impact statement. So I was able to go to the court and have my kind of day in court, so to speak, and, and read out my victim impact statement. So I chose to, he was in the dock. I mean, I've not seen him for like, you know, getting on for, well, 20 years at that point. Um, so yeah, I was, I, so I was able to stand in, in the witness box and, you know, read my impact statement to him I mean essentially to kind of um explain to him all the 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 damage that that he'd done um so I mean so yeah I mean I was able to kind of draw a line under it a little bit but um you know I mean it's 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 I mean it's still a struggle I mean as um other people have said you know I've got justice but that doesn't mean that I'm jumping up and down and all happy and smiling because I live with the legacy of, of that abuse and I will continue to do so f- for the rest of my life absolutely and I think a lot of people had even said that you know to me that I'm one of the lucky ones because I, I also got a conviction through my case and you know being called a lucky one is a really difficult thing because obviously you're not lucky for anything that you've gone through but I wouldn't call it even justice I think it was for me personally the name that I put down to it was validation yeah you know, because I think so many times I told myself as well, was it bad enough? Was it, am I making this up? Am I, should I have said anything like, you know, and throughout that whole process, I think getting a conviction sometimes can just be a validation where you can draw a line in the sand almost to your own feelings and validate it was okay for me to be upset. It was okay for me to be going through a really hard time. This did happen. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Validation for me. And that's what I really felt. I felt really kind of for that. I mean, I wish I could go back in and just rerun it over and over again. But that time when I just stood in in the witness box and read my statement and was able to say everything that that happened to me and to have the 
the well at, at the sentencing i mean my my father's um barrister was spouting all this stuff in mitigation which was really hard to hear but to then have the judge kind of like pretty much brush that aside and say yeah whatever um you know what you did was was wrong and and you did this and you you know you're going to go to prison for it, it was really validating and the fact that somebody I mean, that's what I still feel. I, I agree. It just, I mean, in this kind of like, you spend your whole life, don't you, doubting, <laughs> doubting your own version of events? Did this happen? Did it not? But I mean, that. Well, I have that memory. I know it happened, and you know, and and for one, for me, finding that school friend was almost like it was like a huge. I mean, in in the whole, it was like a huge moment because I'd always thought, did I? Did that actually happen? Was I actually saying that? Did, you know. And so to have somebody come back and say, yes, they, you know, you, that did happen was just, um, yeah, I mean, re- really huge for me. I mean, I'd like to think that, well, I know I know that my father didn't plead guilty for any altruistic reasons. <laughs> and to, you know, I think he did it just to try and get a lesser sentence. And because, frankly, when, when I was 30 and I'd first disclosed to my mother, he he admitted it. He admitted that he'd abused me, but not what he'd done. So, I mean, he, I mean, that was, he didn't really have anywhere to go uh, with it um yeah but but again it felt it was almost like but he's 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 admitted it so there's only two people who really knew what happened and that was me and that was him um and he's admitted it so actually so yeah it really did happen uh, yeah I mean yeah. It's, it's a weird it's a weird thing how it messes with your head um certainly it does and the way that it can make you second guess your own sanity in many ways where you're so sure of what happened but then you've got societal expectations and you're also trying to maybe suppress feelings so that you can get on with your life and things like that those are the other factors that come on top of it where you're just like how did my brain get to a point where it almost convinced myself that it wasn't what happened but at the same time you I think at the end of it you can see full circle how you got there especially in your position with this being an incest situation where you've got somebody that you truly love and you've got that such dichotomy of feelings where there's somebody's abusing you but you also truly love them because they're your parent so of course your brain is starting to you know fight itself in some ways because those two feelings aren't really congruent yeah no completely I mean I mean I, I've suffered from sort of mental health issues kind of depression anxiety sort of you know pretty much all my life but it wasn't only after I went to the police and then I had another kind of um, sort of crisis again and that and I finally got diagnosed with complex PTSD and I think that and that that kind of then made sense of a lot of the stuff that had been happening for me um over the years I mean I mean obviously when I went to the police um and it was all going on and my father was interviewed and and I did my interview and I just all these kind of things I mean it was obviously hugely traumatizing um experienced the whole thing and I was starting to have flashbacks I didn't know what they were um you know flashbacks and and nightmares and just you know like I said I disassociated through a lot of the abuse but I didn't realize that as an adult I've been doing that a lot as well (laughs) that I disassociate and you know just sometimes I just you're going through the day and like everything's happening as a film and it's just like I mean so all these different things I didn't realize what they were um I mean I mean, it was good. I mean, it was great to get a diagnosis because now you can pin it all together, so you now know what the whole thing is. But um, you know, but but yeah, just I think really the hardest. I mean, it would have been easier for me. I th- I say I don't know. I mean, uh, I think it would be easier for me if I'd hated my father. Um, but but loving him and he. But like I said, my mother was just not not available as a mother. 
Um, so, so she was sort of next to useless, and and I always hated her. I remember hated her, hating her from a really small child. Um, and I always think, is that is that is did, is that my own? You know, is that something that was put on me by my father? And that, but my brothers had the same kind of experience with her as well. So I kind of had that kind of validation, knowing that actually she wasn't very great. So my dad was just this kind of knight in shining armor, just this wonderful kind of man. And he and it, you know, as well as the you know the physical sexual incest kind of stuff there was the emotional kind of incest as well where he he treated me like his mini wife so you know he would um you know he would we would go for walks together you know uh, you know hand in hand when I was like fairly small and he'd be talking to me as if I was his wife so telling me all his troubles and then he'd even tell me about you know troubles that he was having with with her so it was almost like we were having an affair um, it was that kind of dynamic um you know which obviously made me feel really special at the time and and I felt a lot of guilt over the years for that kind of you know that feeling that you know that I that you know that I felt special but that was the only thing that I could I had to hang on to something um because otherwise everything would just fall apart so I had to think that I was just this really special person um to him and you know my mother was a demon and and all this other kind of stuff I mean it was just I mean I think unpicking and I still continue to unpick all that kind of stuff it's just really uh, yeah, re- really just a difficult thing. And I think I don't think that, well, I don't think abusers think about us at all. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I, that's what I was trying to get across in my victim impact statement to my yeah. to my father and, and to my mother, because she's seen it now, and, and to, you know, everybody else, that, that it's, this is, this is a legacy that, that we carry, isn't it? And we never, we, we never, we never, we, we, we can't get away from that. I mean, there will never be, I mean, I think I'm, I mean, I'm still trying, I mean, um, I'm still in therapy now, and and I actually just started two nights ago another new drug. So I'm like I'm running like a hundred million drugs that I'm on, trying to find the right kind of um, sort of regime to be able to sort of manage manage the you know depression is my main you know huge thing that I that I deal with, and and I you know you kind of think I so I thought I you know at the end of the court case he's in prison everything's going to be lovely, but it it doesn't work like that. And I think I'm I've, I'm still left with having to try and deal with how do I deal with this depression and you know all the PTSD other symptoms and stuff for, for for the rest of my life, but still, you know, have a life, <laughs> you know, without without yeah, you know, because it's like I'm 52 now, um, you know, and it's uh, you think yeah I've still got hopefully um, a good 30 years or so. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you know, but you think you, you can't go back in time. And, and and I think there's still a lot of anger that I haven't really got in touch with, um, you know, with all of this. But, but but the things that we're left with are just, it's it's really hard. It's still really hard. Yeah, definitely. And I think that might have, you know, it sounds like that, that relationship with him was almost something that he probably might have tried to exacerbate with your mother in a way. So, to remove you from her a little bit, make you dislike her almost a little bit more because that makes you more vulnerable. You've got one less person in your corner and more reliant on him, which is that grooming aspect as well of making you in adoration of him. And I think that's one of the hardest things that, you know, for most people I've spoken to is literally they've said the same thing so many times. I wish that I hated them it would have been easier because you're going through this thing and you're going, there was so much of a feeling of being special and, and, and I just, I can, 
completely empathized and I'd, I'd never been through that situation myself. So I can't, I can't ever understand, but you know, when somebody says that to you, it's just, you can, you can put yourself almost in their shoes and go, no wonder you have struggled because that is just so complex. Those feelings and that being able to manage that and then now moving forwards and, you know, almost expecting this conviction to be this aha moment where you get to take it all back. But instead it's just another kind of step, you know, and they're all steps potentially in the right direction, but you've not reached the top of the staircase yet. Yeah, and I don't, and I think the reality is, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd like to think you reach the top of the staircase, but I don't think you do. I don't think there is. I don't think there is a top of the the staircase. And just just when you were talking, just just wanted to give a, an example of you know how confusing it was for me as a child because my yeah my, my father was just weird. I mean, you can imagine he was just weird. But when we when I was six, he bought me a rabbit, um, which was a really out of kind of character. Um, thing to do and and I was just like you know I mean as, as part of the grooming thing I think and I was just like because oh, he hated all animals and anything like that and like I say he was kind of violent in, in many respects but so I had this rabbit and I was just like wow this is amazing you know he's amazing he's bought me this rabbit but um, a few years later um, he took I don't know I was trying to trying to control me I think he took the rabbit put it in a sack um, took it across the road and just you know and, and killed it <laughs> in 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 the in the park I mean I wasn't there my older brother had to go with him um and he remembers that as a hugely kind of thing so he basically he gave me this rabbit um you know and I and I adored that rabbit and then you know maybe maybe when I was getting older maybe I don't I don't know maybe he was and he was just trying to say I think you know I have complete control over you so I've given this to you and I can take it away and um so it was like a hugely uh, yeah, just as that's the kind of person he was. So on the one hand, he could be really, what, lovely. Um, obviously, he wasn't really. And then on, on the other, just like completely cruel. And, um, you know, and as well as sort of setting up, I mean, I mean I've read, read around this, um, you know, that there's always kind of, so there's three, there was three children in my family. So I've got an older brother and I've got a younger brother and I'm in the middle. And my, my dad always... Um, hated my older brother I mean my older brother has memories that when he was three of my father chasing him around the garden trying to beat him up with a with a saucepan you know I mean what could a child of three you know have done and um you know and always hated my older brother my older brother was like ostracized from the family so my so my dad would like you know exclude him be violent towards him he would never come on holiday with us he would be like he was like I mean he lived in the house but he was like a, like a non- like a non-person um and then you know obviously he had that kind of relationship with me and my older brother could only see my father being really lovely with me so then he hated me and would then hit me um you know it's not his fault but he was obviously acting out with me and then my younger brother bless him nothing you know outward abuse wise happened to him and he was like the golden boy in in my dad's eyes um but we all kind of like it was like a really my my therapist likens my family to um, sort of Goebbels, um, you know, that Nazi uh, war criminal, you know, and saying that, yeah. you know, the, the famous kind of picture of the Goebbels family Christmas. So you had like, you know, all this lovely family around around a Christmas tree, you know, with him. And then you've got the gas chambers. Um, that's what it's all a bit like, you know, to the outside world. My dad, my dad had a really well respected job. He worked in the city of London. I mean, we were middle class. We all went to private schools. Um, you know, I mean, to the outside world, 
we looked like the perfect family, but it was completely different inside. We couldn't have anybody come to the house. We didn't. We couldn't have friends come to the house, um, and nothing like that. So we lived in this kind of, you know, his, his a cult, a mini cult. And my father was the the leader of the cult, and and we just. I mean, I couldn't even. I mean, this is obviously in the days before mobile phones, but. Um, you know, if a friend of mine tried to ring the house on like a landline, I would go and I would have a panic attack because it would be like somebody's come into the house. I mean, they weren't in the house, but it was like that, that there was I had to have. Um, and I still quite um, I've talked to psychiatrists about this and therapists and stuff. And, and I don't know if anybody as I haven't found anybody that has the same kind of experience in their head. But I used to have like, you know, so I'd be I had to be one person in the home. And then that was that. And then I would I had to walk to school. And as I walked to school every day, I'd have this weird screeching in my head. Like it was like I moved from, you know, the home person to school person. Because obviously I had to be a different person at school to the one that I was at home. And I'd have this really awful, and I still get it now, just like this awful screeching in my head, almost like as as I moved from one kind of um, person to another, um, you know, to, to go to school. And, and and school even wasn't really a, I mean, school was a bit of a release, um, but I acted out really a lot in school and was always, you know, in trouble and doing things, you know, and, and these days one would hope that that would be picked up as a kind of a red flag. Um, so, so school was also a stressful thing because I was always in trouble, <laughs> but I suppose that was stress that I could, that I could manage and that I could, you know, deal with, um, you know, whereas the stuff that was going on in, in the home, I couldn't even give it you know, a name for, for many years. I didn't even know what it was. And in the 70s, and uh, well, in the 70s, child abuse wasn't spoken about really, um, I mean, at all. Um, and, and at least these days, I mean, I know it's still going on, but at least we can, we can have this conversation. I mean, I can't imagine we would ever, you would ever have had this conversation with anybody in the 1970s um, about abuse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of what you're saying is ticking off so many boxes of domestic violence in that you know, um, intimate partner violence as well, where you've got that extreme isolation where you can't do certain things and you've got the monopolization of perception, you've got this whole power and control dynamic. Um, and it's interesting that you say, you know, the, the Goebbels kind of, um, analogy as well. Have you heard of the Biedermann chart of coercion? No, no, it's, um, basically this chart that was created by Biedermann and it goes through all of the different tactics that people use to control prisoners of war. And a lot of those, those are the same. And the interesting thing was um, the most initial thing that they do is they, they're kind, they're very nice. And then they might, you know, switch a flick very quickly and, you know, enforce very trivial demands or different things like that. Um, and in later years, people have overlaid that model on top of domestic abuse and family violence and seen that there's such a an alignment with those control tactics. Like mm. how do you get a person to control, to be controlled? And I think the interesting thing was when I started to learn more about this as well is that it's almost like all of these abusers have gone to some kind of abuse university where yeah. they somehow just have figured out all of these similar tactics and they're following the same textbook. Um but it just sounds a lot like that. And I think, you know, with the CPTSD diagnosis as well, you get the clinician that can actually help you work through that instead of just saying this is causing this. You get somebody that's going to go, 
this and all of this and be able to look at it as a holistic thing rather than just the symptom almost. Yeah, I mean, like, cause I, I mean, so I was variously diagnosed with like depression was the main thing, then then anxiety, then then all these other kinds of things, and then but when you give it like an actual um, kind of thing, then then you can see it, like you say, as a whole, as a whole with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting you say about yeah, people go like they've gone to a university and stuff, and I do wonder if um, some of that is they've learned that behaviour in their in their childhoods as well but I mean that's only not excusing anybody at all but that they've 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 learned that and they just keep perpetuating that and you know and they don't have the you know because obviously everybody has a choice but they haven't got to that place where they can um you know do do the right thing and get help um when they kind of see these kind of things so they just don't have the um, any intelligence emotional intelligence to kind of see that but um but yeah it's interesting that everybody you know, they all follow the same pattern, isn't it? Like you say, it's like they're all, I mean, these days one might think that, you know, people are, you know, on the dark web are exchanging kind of ideas or whatever. I mean, God, horrific as that might sound. But yeah, back in the day, I mean, my, you know, my dad, um, you know, and, my, and, my, and the way that, you know, that my mother and father, that kind of dynamic as well. Because I mean, obviously she's got a lot of, you know, I mean, she stayed with him. She, you know, I mean, how can you, you know, and she, and I think she certainly knew what was happening to my older brother and she colluded with that. Um, you know, I mean, I think she, she enabled, she enabled him to, to do what he, what he did. I mean, he was, I mean, he was, he was, um, I mean, he was controlling towards her as well, but, um, but no, I mean, I just have, I mean, any, any sane, normal mother, um, would, would, um, would not allow those kind of things to, to go on in the home. Um, you know, I mean, there's just just no excuse for her. And I mean, I feel, I mean, I'm sorry, I do feel anger towards my father. I feel no love towards him now, which which is a, which is a, actually a really lovely place to be. That I don't feel any love towards him um, now. I mean, it was it was hard um, seeing him um, um, at, at the core. I mean, I mean, when I went to the core, obviously I was kept separate from him. But there was there was a, a time when we had to adjourn for lunch and come back and. And it was interesting because he he we did see him walk, um, you know, looking really like he was, you know, the the victim kind of back across the to, into the courtroom. But my friend had been watching him before, um, you know, unbeknownst to me, and he'd been chatting away like, you know, everything was completely fine. And then as soon as he knew that we were watching, he was suddenly this kind of hunched figure, sort of walking across and stuff. And and it really got to my 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 younger brother was there. Uh, my younger brother and I, you know, we would, and we were really broken by that for a few days until we realised, no, this is, he's just manipulating again, isn't it? And you still, even now, I still have to keep reminding myself that everything he does and did was like a whole manipulation um, of everything. So all the kind of stuff that his lawyer said in his mitigation that you know he's really sorry and he doesn't know how he just loved me so much. All this other kind of rubbish that they come out out with and it was that was really hard to hear and when I went home that was all that was playing in my head until the next day I thought no you need to that's that's just manipulation it was what the judge said that basically he was a you know whatever and should go away for you know as long as he could put him away for that that was what I had to focus on so I had to get the transcript yeah. from the court so that I could re- keep rereading what the judge said because it was all Everything that the QC, with the barrister was saying for my dad, it was like hearing my dad again as a child. It was just uh, you know, over and over again. And that was just this huge manipulation. Um, yeah. And that's just really hard to, to 
sort of get get beyond, you know. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Definitely. Um, I do have a couple of questions as well. If, if you yeah. mind, do we go um, back a little bit? You did yeah. say that you know you had a really good detective when you worked through the police. Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit, bit about what that process was like when you went to the police and and where they went from that and how they maybe kept you informed of their investigation? Yeah. So um, so I first uh, made the decision to to report. So I call I first. I mean, I, it's probably different in Australia, but this is how it works in the UK. Um, so I, I called the police. I have like a non emergency number and made my initial report. And and they said oh, to come into um, a local police station on you know a couple of days later. So I went in, but there'd been some miscommun- miscommunication. So when I went to the to the police station to, to do what I thought was my initial kind of in-person statement. Um, you know, they weren't expecting me, uh, but I'd built in my head, everything had built up to that point. So I just had like a complete meltdown in the police station and was just sobbing hysterically saying somebody has to see me. I've got, you know, it's taken me, you know, 40 years to get to this point. I need to report um, now. So obviously they, they said, okay, we'll, we'll try and find somebody. And it was like really, um, moving that there was there was also in the police station there was a homeless woman and she saw me like sobbing hysterically and she came over to me and and she said oh you know you're okay and I said well no it's taking me so long to get to to get to report and now they're not they're now they're not seeing me and she just held my hand and she just said I, I know I know what you're here to to report she said the same thing happened to me but I was never able to to share that and I was just I thought okay well now and that sort of made sort of reinvigorated me I thought well I have to now I'm doing it not just for myself, but for everybody who hasn't been able um, to report. Everybody that you know, all the homeless women, have, and I'm sure the the bar, I know the vast majority of them, you know, have, have been abused and you know haven't been lucky enough to have the life that I have. Um, 
so so I thought, okay, so then I spoke to the police um, and went to this awful back room. It doesn't sound great at the moment, but and and so there were there were there were two just normal kind of police there. And as soon as they just they basically just wanted me to give like a very brief overview, like a timeline of everything. But once I as soon as it became apparent that it was you know um, uh, had been abuse of a child um, under thirteen, I think was the criteria. That, um, that then they said, okay, well you know we'll take we've taken your initial kind of um, chronology. Um, but this has to go to a special safeguarding unit. So, um, and they said then that that, that so the safeguarding unit would get in touch with me. So, the case was then referred to like a special child sexual abuse um, unit in the Met Police, um, and I got contacted uh, quite quickly afterwards on the phone by by my then um, uh, uh, sort of uh, police. Uh, she was a she's a PC, a police constable, but um, so who would be my investigating officer? So we had initial telephone conversation, and she did have to say, and, and I've said this on another kind of interview that I had because she did one of the first questions she asked was like, you know, why is it taking you so long to report? She didn't really say it in those kind of words. It's like how, you know, what why you're fifty now and this happened? Like, you know, why? Because I have to ask you why. And so I, I mean, I, you know, which isn't really, you know, a great great question because we all know that you know it takes takes years for people to be able um to report and I and I was quite honest and I said well I hadn't reported it before because I you know I would have killed myself if I'd done that because I just wasn't in the right kind of place to be able to do that so then she arranged for me to we'd we'd had a conversation and you know um I explained that when I was 13, I'd first disclosed my father had made some admissions. So, of course, they were really excited about that because they're thinking, OK, they've got a good case here. So she arranged for me to go over to a special suite um, in a, in a um, near a police station. It wasn't in a police station, but it was in a, a different uh, building where they it's a, a special unit for um, victims of sexual violence. Um, uh, and um, I was so I went there and it was really, again, very difficult well obviously it's difficult anyway but I but I went there but the room they take you into first of all is just like full of toys and you know sofas and stuff but obviously because they're dealing with you know sexual abuse of children now and that was really again kind of like really heart heart rending but so I was there and so she was there and there was another another um female police officer was also there and they were just explaining what they were going to do so um in the UK that I wouldn't didn't have to give evidence in the court what they do is they you go into a special room and your your um your testimony um is video interviewed and that is what is then played in the courtroom um so we did that so I had the different PC was interviewing me and obviously I told told my story and um the other my investigating officer was watching from an adjoining room so then they, and then afterwards we all came together and her demeanor had changed actually um uh, we've got we've got quite close over the couple of years but she when she first obviously she was very matter of fact and very kind of policey or whatever when but once they'd heard my my story and my testimony that came in and she said oh you're really credible like a whole kind of um, demeanor had changed like yeah okay we, we can go with this one um, kind of thing so then we sort of went through the whole process of you know me signing all these disclaimers for them to get my medical records etc um, so she said that from that point, the next stage was she was going to um, interview my father and then try, start trying to sort of interview other family members, you know, people I told over the years, um, etc. 
Um, so she said that she would keep in touch with me at least once a month to keep me in touch. But she was, I mean, she was great. So from that, so that was in July 2019, I did my best evidence interview. And then in August, she interviewed my father. They didn't arrest him. Um, they interviewed him um, voluntarily. Um, so he, he was interviewed and they, she called, I remember I was in Turkey on holiday and she called me that day um, and, and said that um, they thought that he was going to give like a no comment interview, you know, where they keep going, no comment, no comment. But he was, you know, stupidly uh, quite happy to talk. So he made some further admissions then, but denied um, the more serious um, charges. Um, and so she, she called me up and she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see. She said, and you told me that he was a controlling and manipulative man. I said, I can really see that because it was her and she was fairly young and the other female PC were interviewing him. And because they were women, he was saying things like, oh, he was trying to control the interview, um, you know, because he was and he was so patronizing to them because they were women. And they were having to say things like, no, we, we are conducting the interview here. <laughs> we're asking the questions. So she said to me, she goes, oh, I just what came out of that? And I thought, I really want to get, get this man. Um, so, the, I mean, it took a long time. Um, obviously, we had COVID hit as well in the thing. But so she, they interviewed um, my brothers. Um, my mother refused to be interviewed and they couldn't compel her. My aunts and uncles refused to be interviewed, even though they knew the truth. Um, but all my friends over the years that I told, um, you know, various bits and pieces. They obviously got all my medical records, you know, my records from when I was hospitalised um, and things like that. So it took quite a long time um, to pull everything together. But she did. She kept calling me and um, telling me. So at least once a month, um, you know, what, what was happening. Um, they went to the prosecution here to um, to discuss what other information they needed. And from quite early on, the, 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 I was, there was one prosecutor, they have a special rape prosecution unit as well. So um, it had gone. So she was in contact with them. And, and they said, you know, the things that we, she needed to get um, for the evidence. Um, but from the start, they said they thought we had quite a good case. And I couldn't quite believe it. Um, so anyway, so we had COVID. So it all went on for about a couple of years. And then um, the case was ready, pretty much. And it went to the prosecutor and then came back and said, yeah, we're going to charge him with everything. And, and that for me was like, you know, there, was, there were certain times when it was just like a like really, you know, fundamentally important moment for me. But that was like a huge moment that they, for me, um, like the, all the, um, you know, the sexual assault, the indecent assault. I mean, I don't mean to downplay it at all, but that had been happening on like, you know, all the time for me. And, and that was kind of like, you know, so there was multiple counts of that. So it all kind of merged into one in my head. But he, he only... I, I, he only raped me the once that I remember, and because that was my hu- the worst, um, the worst memory for me always, as you can imagine, and that and I was really dissociated with that memory, so it was never a complete memory, and it still isn't. And I've struggled, and I know lots of people struggle with a struggle with for years wanting to <laughs> have the whole memory. But the fact that you don't have the whole memory is just how trauma memory works, isn't it? So that actually makes you more credible. And that's yeah. what the police said to me. But so so for me in my head, that was another one of these really, did that actually happen? Did that not happen? Even though I knew it happened, you know, kind of thing. So when they charged me, that I was like, so they charged him with the rape as well. And so, so that was like a huge, a huge thing for me. Um, so they charged him and then it had to go, started going through the court process um, and we got it got to the crown court and and he pleaded guilty and um and for me that was a shock for everybody i mean that was a shock for for me i mean a huge shock for me a shock for the police 
um, and for the prosecution and for um, my brother. I mean, it was just like oh, complete. We were all really shocked that he pleaded guilty. Um, and again, that was another one of those moments like, okay, yes, th- you know, it really did happen. Um, yeah. And then, and then, so that was August last year. And then we had to wait like the interminable wait. It was awful waiting for the sentencing because I thought something was going to happen. I thought I've come so close. Um, I had to be signed off work because I just couldn't focus on anything because all I could keep thinking of was the day of the sentencing. Would he get COVID? <laughs> would he die? Would 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 something happen in between? Would he retract his his guilty plea? Would he all this other kind of stuff? And and only when I only when on the day I was at the court and I knew that he was at the court did I almost kind of just breathe a sigh of relief that we were at that point and now it had come the point where I could then you know uh you know give my impact statement and he would be sentenced and and taken away um you know so it was a quite it was a it was a very grueling process I mean I won't uh, you know like I said when after I first went to the police I had a bit of a breakdown again because it was just that whole I mean you've held this secret and you've been told to keep this secret all your life and now suddenly you know and I've just I mean the my family had been pretty much imploded before anyway but I mean it completely did implode um in terms of like you know my younger brother no longer you know has any contact with with any of I mean he had kind of been in contact with some of my aunts and uncles so that they're all completely you know um you know we're all estranged now but I mean I do have my older brother my older brother my younger brother as part of my family now but so the whole family kind of imploded and I got a lot of kind of um because I decided then to waive my anonymity um, as well uh, so that I could speak up about this and try and encourage others to, you know, A, go to the police, because I know that lots of people probably think that, like I did, you know, that you never get anywhere. But, you know, you, you can, you can go to the police and they will listen to you and, you, you know, you will be taken seriously. So I want to encourage people to to go to the police. But if they don't feel able to do that, and God knows it took me until I was 50 to do that, um, you know, to at least speak out and tell somebody, um, you know, to get some help. Um, because trying to live with it yourself in silence is just, um, you know, it's no good for anybody. Um, so I waived my anonymity as well. And so, of course, then I did an interview with with Sky News and and I and I where where my parents lived um, before we went into prison. My mother still lives there, and I and I wanted to have some kind of punishment for her because she's got no punishment. She's I mean my, her her husband's in prison, but you know she's she I mean she doesn't say any of her children or her grandchildren, but that's of her own making. But I wanted to punish her, so I did a um, an interview with with her local paper, and it went front page. <laughs> so she went out to get her milk whatever and yeah it's just there and you know my father was named you know the road where they live is named so I just don't think she can carry on living in that community because now they all know and my father was living in plain sight he was like well respected I mean they were retired but he was just a month before he pleaded guilty he got third prize in an allotment competition in the you know um, like a garden competition and he was you know director of his local residence association all this kind of stuff just carrying on as if everything was fine and then you know uh, and now he's in 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 a sex offenders prison (laughs) you know yeah yeah but it goes to show like you've done such an incredible job to advocate for yourself even though it's been a tremendously difficult experience but to get this outcome for yourself and to advocate for yourself and believe yourself and, and trust yourself and, and also to come out of it with your two brothers on either side of you is is incredible. It's 
it's shocking and hard to believe that grown ass adults who have, you know, the ability to perceive things would see somebody plead guilty to all of those charges and then not reach out to you as your, as the rest of your family, like to take his side, you know, is it maybe they they think that this stuff should stay in the family or yeah, I, they... I, think, I think so. I mean, since, so they, they refused to help the police, um, you know, and blatantly lied because we knew and my brothers, my sister-in-law, so we had had conversations with these, um, you know, aunts and uncles back in, you know, 1999 when I first disclosed to the family. Uh, and so they blatantly lied that they didn't know anything about it. And, um, and yeah, so then he's pleaded guilty. And, and since he's pleaded guilty, uh, but two uncles, well, two, the, the two uncles have approached, um, well, one uncle approached me uh, and, and I just told him where to go um, because I said, you know, it's too late, too little, too late now. And and another uncle um, and aunt have approached my brother saying, well, can we kind of, you know, explain our side? But I mean, both my brothers and I have just kind of, well, it's too late now. Do you know what I mean? It just like the time, the time was when the police approached you. And that was a time to stand up. And it's too late now. Now, they only want to come forward now because they look bad because, you know, it's been in the press that, you know, and I've been quite open about the fact that my mother and my you know, my father's family have been supporting him, you know. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. They just wanted to keep it in the family. I think it was sort of the whole thing, you know, it was just like, you know, but that happened a long time ago. That's in the past. But we know that, you know, I think I read something somewhere that with PTSD, it's not that, you know, when people say to you, oh, you know, just get over it, you know, move forward. It's it, with PTSD, it's it, PTSD holds you in the past. You can't, you can't move forward from it. You know, I mean, that's just the nature of it you can't you can't just say a wave of my god if we could we all would I mean that's I mean that's a ridiculous thing when people say oh can't you just leave it in the past you, you think we don't want to yeah I mean we, <laughs> we all we all just want to just forget it and move on but the point is that you can't because it's because it's had such a detrimental effect on on your brain um you know and it, and it's and it's messed you up and I, my brain is permanently you know I'll never know so I said in my victim impact so but I will never know what person I would have been because I was six when it started. I have, you know, a handful of memories before then. So for me, my entire life has been this, um, you know, so I, I can't just, I don't know what I would have been like before. You know, I, I mean, so I can't just think, okay, I mean, I can try and live my life, obviously, and that, that's what I've been doing, um, you know, and I'm lucky. That's why I say with that, you know, I'm very conscious that I'm in a really privileged place and that's why I want to wanted to waive my right to an anonymity because you know I mean I have I have a good job I own my own home I've got two beautiful children um you know uh, and and I have a voice you know and I can speak and I and I want to speak for all those that can't speak all of those that have killed themselves that are homeless on the streets that you know are addicted to drugs alcohol whatever we we choose to self-harm with you know and and I can you know I mean I am in a very I mean I do think myself uh, you know, lucky. I mean, I, I am. I am grateful that I have this. Um, you know, that, that I've got this far. That I that I've achieved what I that what I've been able to achieve, and all in spite of, <laughs> in spite of that. I mean, like like I, in in the in the um, mitigation, it was like cause I originally qualified as a lawyer, and and I've got two degrees, and and it, it, the you know my father's barrister has the audacity to say. 
you know everything's all right with you because because you, you you've got two children you've got two degrees you trained as a lawyer I'm just like well yeah but I did that in spite of you not not like that's that's okay then do you know what I mean that you've done okay for yourself so you know don't need to worry about this I mean, yeah. yeah. And I've said that to a few people as well because I think a part of my trauma, I'm a, I'm very much in a great place over my depression. The anxiety for me does come back often, yeah. but the the traumatic memories and things like that still do come back every now and then, and it is really difficult. And I think that's also a part of me trying to not think about it is me maintaining a busy status consistently. I'm always doing something and I'm the same, you know, going to university, working full time, you know, even administering this podcast, you're almost in a way trying to protect yourself by being so active all of the time. So that you don't have time to think about what you've got going on in the back. You don't want to relax because those are the times that are almost the hardest for you to deal with. And I think that's a lot of people's experience. They might look outwardly successful, but what's been driving that? And have they been living as well? Because being successful on paper isn't living a hugely happy and fulfilling life either. So there is that as well, which is just incredibly naive for him to say and almost discredit you of saying, yes, this happened, but it hasn't impacted you as if that has any difference on whether he broke the law or not. Yeah, exactly. I know. I mean, it, and I, I completely, I completely identify with you about being the the, the busy kind of thing. I mean, that's all. Like, I mean, yeah, all the time. I mean, that's. I mean, the the running, the running for me has been really helpful for my mental health. I mean, that's why I do it. But it, but it has a kind of, um, you know, like like it's like a busy kind of compulsive kind of. You, know, you just got to keep going, haven't you, and stuff. And when you relax is when it's when it's hard. But that, but it becomes exhausting. <laughs> It's exhausting, um, is and I and I think that's you know I, I mean I I have to sleep a hell of a lot because because it's exhausting trying to like you say maintain this kind of everything um, busy 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 all the time. Um, but I think you're right. I think a lot of people who um, are driven um, have got some kind of something there there you know underneath that, that they're kind of. You know, not wanting to deal with or you know not wanting to think about or I mean like over Christmas I mean Christmas and New Year is never a great time of year for lots of people but you know when you suddenly do have time I mean I, I mean I was having you know flashbacks quite a lot over the Christmas period um, again and, and because because you're not doing stuff but by the same time it's almost like I said to my therapist I said I just want to spend the day in bed she goes well so but she said, go to bed then. So I spend the day in bed and I'm just like, oh my God, no, this is horrible because I, I'm, you know, all I'm doing is thinking or having flashbacks or whatever. So I need to be busy. And, and it's a, and I think, yeah, there's, there's never, it's really hard. Well, for me, it's really hard to find a happy medium. And I still, I still haven't found the happy medium. Yeah, I'm definitely the same. And I think that's going to be something that a lot of trauma sufferers go through for a very long time is trying to figure out how to relax a little bit and not be triggered in those moments. And um, yeah, I completely understand and agree with that because it's been something I've never been able to find a happy balance with. Um, I've just recently started tracking my sleep and I don't sleep very much at all. And I was looking at my sleep patterns. I was like, I this is not healthy. <laughs> I need to go to bed at a normal time, wake up at a normal time. But even in that has been difficult because I'm having to change it so drastically. So now it's kind of going, okay, let's not go straight into eight hours a night. Let's figure out if we can get to, I don't know, five. 
So let's yeah. start here and aim for this time because I think as well you change things so drastically and so often then you never hit normalcy. You're in a constant state of change. Yeah, and I, I think we're, we kind of tend to be sort of overachievers in some respects. Right? You say, okay, I need to sleep this amount of time, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. But I have to say that my, my I mean, I, I, like I say, I'm now on three different kinds of medication, but two of them I take at night to help me sleep because that was, that was an issue. And now, I mean, in an ideal world, I could sleep, you know, 10, 11 hours a night, and I'm so <laughs> blessed with that. But, um, but for me a lack of sleep I know that if I have a bad night's sleep or whatever then my anxiety is through the roof um so I do think that even though then it's anxiety producing because you think I'm not sleeping enough I need to sleep more um but sleep sleep for me is something that is a really I've learned is a really important thing that I need I need to have my sleep so I I prioritize that above pretty much everything else to be honest now that's something that's taken a long time to get to that point but um but, I, but I, I, I completely agree that you need to, you know, for, especially for anxiety, um, any kind of mental health thing, I think having a lack of sleep is really detrimental. And it's definitely something we don't talk about, I think, sleep as well. Like, you know, it's just one of those things where people almost dismiss it as being like, oh, yes, okay, I stayed up a little bit late. That's not making the big difference. But, you know, two or three hours a night, every night over the course of a week, how much time is your brain missing out on just resting? Yeah, um, yeah, no, I mean, and I am really lucky. I mean, I, I mean, I've had, you know, I've been through years, obviously, when I had kids as well, and I had no sleep and things like that. But, um, but now I'm just so, you know, when I wasn't working over the Christmas period, I mean, some nights, so I tracked my sleep as well, it was like, I slept for like 11 hours, it was just like, and I felt so much better. You know, it was just like, wow, but it's just trying to, and obviously, I do have when I um, spoke to the psychiatrist, and, and we've been trying to tweak, tweak my medication. Um, the first thing I said to him, I said, whatever you give me, I need to be able to sleep. So that's my priority. So now that's why I have two drugs now that I take of an evening that, that you know, have to have a sedative effect. Um, you know, and, and, I'm, and I know that medication is not everybody but I have to say I mean I, and I do find it depressing that you know just in terms of medication a lot of people don't speak about medication as well and, and being on it and stuff and I think that's a bit of a taboo so I uh, say so just for your listeners so I'm on two antidepressants at their highest dosage and I now just started two nights ago um, so I'm still in terms of that um, an antipsychotic as well <laughs> so which was kind of freaked me out a little bit but it doesn't you know I mean it is used for for sort of major depression and other things as well so and I, and I do find it depressing I'm, I find it depressing that I'm still I'm too on all this medication and I still have symptoms of um, you know PTSD depression anxiety and stuff and and that is something that that is hard to come to terms with that there isn't just a pill that you can take that that just switches everything off and you're fine but I do know that without them god I'd be even worse so this is just a yeah. try and you know, I was, I was trying to think last night about how I like metaphors. I like metaphors for like mental health. So I'm trying to think to myself, okay, the depression isn't just going to go away. It's just like it's a, like today actually here, the sun's come out now. Well, it hasn't come out because it's still, but it, but it's, there's, there's no clouds in the sky. So, so that for me is a mentally good day, say in my head. And there'll be days when the clouds come across and there's like the depression, but the clouds will move on. But when I'm having a really bad day, there's a storm and everything like that. And, and I try and kind of, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll try and stand in the rain for a bit. But if it gets too much, then I just have to hunker down and that's like go to bed. So the medication for me is trying to just make sure that the clouds, you know, when they come, they move across quite quickly and stuff, just be able to help to manage it. But the clouds will always be there. 
you know, and there'll always yeah. there'll always be times when they may come up for whatever reason. Like I was just saying to a friend yesterday that for me, I can't watch. It sounds really bizarre, but I can't watch programs on TV about teenagers having a normal life because I find that really triggering because that, that yeah. shows to me what I didn't have. And I find that more triggering, conversely, than watching, you know, really grim psychological thrillers or whatever. You know, I just I don't find those triggering, but I find just you know and even comedy it's like I can't I find it really hard to watch comedy I mean it sounds bizarre but it's kind of like because that just highlights to my kind of teenage part what I didn't have um so I think it it takes a long time to I mean I sound 52 now um and you know I've been dealing with this all my life and um you know on the one while while on the one hand it is depressing that I'm still you know having to deal with all this kind of stuff I am in so much better place than I was you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I'm quite, it's a constant learning kind of thing, learning what are your triggers, you know, and how you deal with them and, and how you're kind to yourself. So when you are having like flashbacks, when you are having that day, when it's really stormy in your head, what do you do? Okay, you try and do, you know, when I read someone, I need to do that this year, it's like someone says, just get a box where you put all these things in that make you feel better. So, you know, whether it's having a bath or just, I mean, I've got a cat, so spending time with the cat, just going to bed, if that's what you need to do, going for a walk, you know, all these things, just so that you can remind yourself of the things that make you feel better. And just knowing, this is what my therapist keeps saying to me, knowing that it's a process, but also that the sun will come out again. You know, yes. that, you know, and you and you know that through your lived experience that there's been times when it's been really, really awful. But then there have been days when, you know, it's been a bit better and you've enjoyed spending time with your kids and, and you've taken to the, them to the cinema or, you you know, you've spent some time stroking the cat or whatever it might be. Um, you know, so, I, so, yeah, so that's what I just say to, to people who've experienced similar, that it's that it is a lifelong thing, but it does get. Does it get easier? I think it, it gets. It gets more manageable, I think, as you get older. Yeah, I think manageable is a good word. And I think when I was on medication, I'm, I'm really lucky to be off medication. That doesn't mean that I don't ever experience symptoms anymore. But when I was on the medication, it got me to a point where I could actually work on the things that I needed to work on. I was yeah, in such did. a state that I could not work on them. You know, you can't take in information properly. You, you're too distressed all the time and it got me to a point to balance myself out for about a couple of years where I could work properly with a psych. I could find routine in my life and and work that out in a more stable capacity, which got me to a point where I could then wean myself off them, which, you know, took a long time to do as well. But I think the thing for, for me and for, you know, I'm sure that you've got that experience as well, is it? it's not that it dulls the feelings and that they're not there. Like you said, with the with the clouds and things and knowing that the sun's going to come out, but it's almost like, you know, when there is a storm or something, you do have an umbrella yeah. where you've got this ability to deal with what's going on around you in a way. And it doesn't stop it from being there, but it might be able to, to focus on that and to work with that for a, for a period of time. Yeah. I think you've just said that much better than I did. <laughs> but exactly, it, just, it just, yeah, it just gets you to a place where you can, where you can, well, you, where you can function as a person, which, you know, we all need to do anyway, especially if you've got kids, um, you know, and you're trying to hold down a job and stuff. Yeah, to be able to do all that and you say, and give you that, just that, that balance so that you can, yeah, deal with everything else. Um, and another me- and metaphor, I mean, my therapist and I really like metaphors, well, I do, but she always used to say, I mean, so this therapist, and it takes a long, um, 
I think with therapy as well, I mean, as I've seen, I've been with some therapists that I've just not got on with. And, you know, the one I'm with now is just worth her weight in gold. It's fantastic. So I, I've been to see her a couple of times. Well, I mean, I've been with her for a few years now, but I had seen her before, then went away and then came back because, you know, she says to me that, you know, trauma and recovery, it's like a spiral. So you, you go around, you go around, you do a bit of work on it and you sort of move a bit forward. And then and then you think, OK, now I'm feeling a bit better now. I can get on with my life. So you get on with your life a bit and then something else happens. So you go, you've gone around the spiral again and you've come back to the point where you need some help again. So you go back into therapy um, and stuff. And, and yeah, so there's, I mean, I've been in and out of therapy since I was um, 30 um but yeah and I've had good therapists and, and I've had bad therapists but I would say that as much as medic I mean so for me I have like the two sort of pronged approach I've got the medication and I've got the therapy but for me if I had to if somebody said to me you've got to take one of those away I would take the the medication away and get keep with the therapy because I think that talking about it um you know is 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 really helpful because not least just from that whole validation kind of thing that you can kind of talk to somebody and they go no that's completely normal <laughs> you know so and you know with the court case like Heather was my therapist she was always saying oh you know you know you're gonna after which goes there is going to be an anti-climax you are going to feel kind of really down and low so when it came I was kind of like okay this is what she was talking about you know, whereas before, you'd, you, if you don't have that kind of context or somebody who's worked with like abuse survivors and knows all these kinds of things, then, then you do think that you're going crazy. But actually, you're not. It's just normal. It's, this is completely, you know, normal what, what you're going through. And that really helps have a therapist. And no amount of medication can teach you that. Yeah, 100%. And I think what's really great about you know, you speaking out about what your experience was with with reporting and reporting so many years on is that there is that misnomer in people's minds, I guess, that, you know, and I, unfortunately in some countries and states they do have that statute of limitations on sex crimes, but it, same in Australia, we do not have one. Um, and through the Royal Commission, there was a Royal Commission into institutionalised ch- institutionalized child sexual abuse and that report found that on average it took people over 30 years, I think it was 35 years, to disclose, and that's why we have none. But what was interesting about what you've said as well is people think you need DNA now. You don't need DNA. You know, if you've got any of those things, if you've ever disclosed to somebody, it's about validating the story. And, you know, if the person does come out and say that they didn't do it or, or whatever or, you know, maybe they were to give a statement that was a no-comment statement, which was in you know, the opposite to what happened in your case, that doesn't mean that there is no case. And I think that's a really interesting thing that a lot of people may have given up on on this path for them. And it's not the right thing for everybody. Not everybody wants to get to this stage. But I think it's an important thing to say that there is an option there and that the police in most countries um, have specialist units for these things where they will sit down and listen to you and they will go through it with you and they will do what they can to bring a credible case, even without something like DNA. Yeah, completely. And I think for, for me, the police always said to me that I came across as credible and that was the most important thing. And also, uh, you know, with the memories as well, I know that people think that, well, I haven't got a complete memory. Like for my, my rape memory, I, have, I, I don't have the end. You know, and I, I don't know. And I, I remember walking down the path to the, to the house, but then I don't know how I got to the bedroom. I don't know how I was on the bed, you know, all these kinds of things. But that is completely normal. And you don't need to have, 
like in fact in fact it's more likely to be not credible if you have like a completely well this happened then I went upstairs and it was like 12 minutes past one and all these kinds of things you just because that's not how trauma memory is and I think I think well I hope and and my police were um, trained in this way that these specialist units they are aware of that and that makes you more credible in a way so don't be frightened that you don't have all the memories, like I said, all my all my memories of like you know the, the indecent insult with the with the you know oral sex and stuff. That I don't have a whole you know because it happens so often. You don't have like one concrete thing. You know, it's just like you know, uh, you know, it happened at least once a week for like ten years. So I mean, you're not gonna it's all gonna be like a, just a load of stuff. But you don't have to have like really concrete things. Just that your knowledge and just that you just go and you just tell the truth and just by telling the truth you will come across as credible and that would have been I think I mean yes I did have the friend that I disclosed to when I was 13 and my brother did read my diary but I think that even without that at no point did the police say to me oh we're not gonna be able to to take this forward because it's just your word against his and that's that's why they were so even people I disclosed to as an adult um, you know that they interviewed all of them as well and even people in recent years like you know even in the last two or three years I did because it all just goes to build a picture that you've been you know saying the the same truth all, all your life and that that builds up the picture of credibility so um, I think that even if I hadn't had those things then you know I still think that I probably would have got a, got a conviction. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was talking to a a sex offences police officer quite recently um, and I showed them my um, victim impact statement because we were just having a discussion about all of this stuff and that came up, you know, with historical cases. And one of the things I thought was interesting was I can't listen to this one song. It's like one of my biggest triggers, uh, Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie. And that song, the first time I ever heard it was played for the first or second time or whatever on the radio when I was in the back of the police vehicle. And that would be something that they could corroborate even in a way to go back to the charts, to go back to the the average time that they could think that it was and to say, okay, you know, this does corroborate at least a time frame, and this memory does corroborate at least in this level. It doesn't mean that you're the most credible, you know, you don't have the exact timeline, but you've got some piece of information that does give you and lend to you some credibility in some way and I know that sounds silly we're talking about a song and the time and everything that that song came out in the charts but at the same time when you're looking back and it's you know months and years and you can say it happened I think in this year when I was this age and someone can say that song did come out that year yeah so that does own itself to some kind of credibility exactly it's all about building the case isn't it which which they're they're expert in doing and it took like you know, sometimes when I talk about it and I think, well, how, why did it take two years to do this? Because, but, but, but it does. I mean, obviously they're working in other cases as well. It's not just mine. Um, but, but yeah, so it's just like, because they are trying to get, I mean, the, my, my police investigating officer, she was just like, you know, she would go to the law, you know, everybody. It was like, okay, what did you say to this person? What did you say to that person? It was just like everybody. And, you know, and, and I was able to, and I felt a part of that as well because, it was through, I said, I should become a detective. So it was through through me and like trying to get in touch with old, because I hadn't really kept in touch with anybody from my childhood, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, and 
uh, yeah, just getting in touch with one person and they put me in touch with somebody else. And that's how we found the, the friend from school. Um, and so, but I did feel that I was involved and that was quite, that was quite um, uh, validating as well. And also you felt you had a bit of control. So I know that obviously if you're an abusive survivor, control is really important. Um, and I felt like I had some control over the process as well by even doing my own kind of thing to trying to, you know, help find this person or that person or, or, you know, what else did I remember? Oh, yes, there was that bit. Had I written? And in fact, something that was also for me, I didn't I did write a diary. I didn't keep the diary from when I was a child, but I did write when I was 30, um, when I was when I was first disclosed to my mother and I was processing everything. Um, I wrote my kind of autobiography, which was a kind of like I'm. Um, uh, you know of the abuse it was for me it was like a therapeutic kind of thing so um I get so the police had that and that was part of the you know that that would have been an exhibit as well so it's all these things it's all about just building the whole picture and you're just you've said the same thing to like a million different people you know maybe not everything all the time because like you say there might be one thing you tell to one person and one thing you might tell to other depending on you know you know what you want to disclose or, or what, whatever the circumstance was but yeah when they bring it all together you just get the full picture and I think that's what the police were able to do and that's why you know when they presented the case his lawyers my father's lawyers just said well, you haven't got a leg to stand on you know you're gonna have to plead guilty yeah. yeah definitely and I think that's a bit of advice that I've given to quite a lot of people as well when they reach out to me and they say something like somebody's disclosed something to me but they don't want to go further with it and I always say, you know, what you can do for them in that moment is write it down. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously don't post it, but if you can write down what they said, if you can write down the context, if you can write down the date and time that they said that and and take a few notes, you know, you know, what did they look like? What did they feel like? It takes you five minutes, I think, if somebody's really disclosed something quite quickly and small and they don't want to do anything about it, they might change their mind. So you might have that in your back pocket if this is something that anybody ever chooses to do as well and just say, oh, yes, let me go back to my um, diary. (laughs) I've got it here. I've got all of the information. Here you go. Um, And I think that can also be, you know, an empowering thing for for somebody who's listening to somebody disclose as well where you go, okay, I've done my bit now and that's all I can do for now. So unless instead of feeling completely helpless, you know that you've at least ticked one box that you can do. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Actually, I never thought of that. But I mean, that, I think that is really good advice because, yeah, I can imagine how much easier it makes it for the police if, if someone comes forward and says, yes, here you are. And you just, yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah, here's a brief of evidence I've already prepared for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you for coming on and, and sharing your story and being so candid. I'm, I'm so sorry that you've gone through what you have, but I'm so happy to see that you're getting to a point now where you're working on yourself and enjoying life and you've got your hobbies and two beautiful children and you've got your chosen family as well around you um yeah it's it's been an incredible conversation and you're you're an incredibly strong and inspirational woman yeah well thank you very much for having me and I just thought with all this if you can just help one person you know either disclose or or go to the police or or just feel just feel they're not alone then then yeah you feel like your job's done don't you Yeah. At the end of each episode as well, I usually do ask if you did have one piece of advice to give to somebody going through this situation um, or in a similar situation, what would that be? I think just to find somebody to to tell, whoever that may be, somebody that you trust um, to tell um, because you're worthy of getting help 
um, for this because you don't you don't need to do it alone. I think is what my message is. And I think you and I can probably both attest to that control side of things. It does almost feel like you're losing control in some ways if you seek help. But the empowering feeling that I've had from from seeking help has been, you know, second to none. Yeah, definitely. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.